to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... The 1930s and 40s. Since 1914, when Taiwanese performers sat down to record their first gramophone records, Taiwan has grown a robust music industry. Through years of changing fashions, Taiwan's artists have kept creating work for the people of their time and ours to enjoy. People here have no trouble remembering the big songs and the big singers of the past. But when it comes to the lives of the stars, the ways music was recorded, and the places where people once listened to music, memories can get a little fuzzy. For questions about the forgotten parts of Taiwan's musical past, you need an expert. Luckily, we found one in Huang Yuyuan, a researcher specializing in recorded music at the National Museum of Taiwan History. In this three-part series, Mr. Huang is taking us back into Taiwan's musical archives, sharing the best-loved songs and unwrapping the stories behind the music. Today, in our second episode, we're in the 1930s and 40s, as foreign influences like jazz enter the picture. The idea of pop music has arrived. By this time, Taiwan has been ruled as a Japanese colony for several decades, and Japanese labels still put out Taiwan's music. In fact, with no studios in Taiwan, many artists still have to sail for Japan to get any recording done at all. Last week, we met two stars of this era and heard their stories. But when we say stars, what do we mean exactly? Would people have recognized them on the street? Were they trailed by fans looking for autographs or paparazzi looking for gossip? No, Mr. Huang says. At this point, our ideas about celebrity had yet to creep into Taiwan. And in any case, performers from the traditional opera stage likely had bigger name recognition. Pop music was new, with a limited market. And among the older generations, there was still a stigma against performers in general, an idea that they were low class. Any fandom, in short, was confined to the young. But while the world of singers may not have been a glitzy one, it could be a comfortable one. Those who signed exclusive contracts with labels got a salary, generating the kind of income many of them could not have imagined outside the music business. Mr. Huang says one of the longest-lived singers of this generation, a performer known by her stage name of Ai Ai, once sat down for an interview later in life. She described the singing lifestyle in this era as something special and different. It was a life not just of recording, but of rehearsals and of live performances as well. It's important to note here that even at this point, recorded music was something special. Live performances remained a common way to hear pop music and get to know new songs. Though concerts as such were not very common and often expensive to get into, people could also hear live performances on the radio and at stages put up at movie theaters. The movies were a big driver of pop music in this era, both recorded and live. Live renditions were important well into the 1930s, because until this point, all film in Taiwan was silent film. Even later on, only the big urban theaters had the ability to put in sound. This meant a narrator of sorts was needed to explain the action on screen, and musicians would be on hand too to add in a soundtrack, sometimes with a pop music feel. 
Theme songs written for films often became hits in their own right. These weren't movie theme songs as we know them. They might not even appear in the film itself at all. They were instead more like the songs that introduce old sitcoms. Songs that set up the premise and introduce the plot, but cut off after building to a point of tension. If you wanted to find out what happened next, you'd have to go see the movie. This 1932 song was written to go with a film called The Peach Girl, an import from the Shanghai film scene. Mr. Huang says it's often regarded as the first ever Taiwanese pop hit. People would have heard these songs in both live and recorded versions. Albums of the songs would be released, but when singers made appearances at movie theaters, it was often to sing promotional songs like these too. In the run-up to a film's release, you could even hear these songs on the streets, played live in promotional parades meant to drum up interest. Mr. Huang says that during this period, recorded music remained beyond the means of many. A modest record player during this period could cost a teacher a whole month's salary. Meanwhile, an individual album might cost around the equivalent of 60 to 90 U.S. dollars today. And often, albums were not sold individually, but as part of bigger sets. People who wanted to hear a record, but might not be able to afford one themselves, could often go down to their local general store. As would later be the case with TVs, general store owners were early adopters of the record player in Taiwan. From time to time, while away on business in the cities, they'd buy new albums and bring them back to share. Other places where records might be played included cafes, a new kind of space in Taiwan. Mr. Huang says young people like to gather in these places, places where alcohol was served as well as coffee, and jazz and other popular music would be played. In the cafes, people might occasionally dance, Meanwhile, more traditional music would sometimes be played at restaurants and tea houses. By now, we've heard a selection of songs from this era. But what about the really big hits, the songs people still know today? One of the biggest of these hits carries the English title, Waiting for the Spring Breeze. On the surface, it's a song of disappointed love. But over the years, it's become far more than that, a Taiwanese anthem of sorts. I ask Mr. Huang why that is. He says Waiting for the Spring Breeze belongs to a class of sad songs from this period sung in the Hokkien language. These songs remain popular through later decades, when political oppression led people to reinterpret the meaning of the words. Stories of unrequited love, disappointment, or hardship came to be reinterpreted as the story of Taiwan itself. But all that would come later. In the 1930s, these were still just popular songs. This brings us to an interesting point about Taiwan's popular music in general. I ask if this era produced more upbeat songs too. Mr. Huang says plenty, and he even lists off a few. But he says they tend to be forgotten. And there's this mistaken idea that the old songs were all depressing. As we've just said, part of this has to do with later history, 
when a depressed mood favored memories of the old sad songs. But part of it also seems to be cultural, something that goes back before pop music. Mr. Huang says the excerpts of Hokkien opera people remember best have always been the weepy bits. By the 1940s, the Pacific War was on, and policies pushing Japanese culture in overseas colonies took on greater force. I ask what effect these policies had on Taiwan's music. Mr. Huang says that's an interesting question, because the answer is a bit paradoxical. There were restrictions on the Hokkien language, he says, but old songs just got new Japanese lyrics. Part of the drive to instill devotion among colonial subjects involved holding musical events and spreading music education. The cultural assimilation campaign co-opted local songs like Waiting for the Spring Breeze, giving them new Japanese lyrics that could have a militaristic tone. Many people who'd never even heard the Hokkien originals now learned these songs as military songs. That's how many older people still remember them. In this way, new policies actually ended up making local pop tunes much more famous than they had been. The end of World War II brought with it the end of Japanese rule. A new era was coming, one of new trends, but also of tight, arbitrary censorship. Join us again next week as Mr. Huang takes us through a tour of post-war Taiwan and tells us about the surprisingly recent blossoming of free expression. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.